Curiosity killed the cat, but that never stopped most of us. I think we're curious by nature, and probably the Adventist people are more curious than most, which is why we love prophecy. We want to know what others don't know. We want to know the future. Reminds me of a little girl who used to ask question after question after question after question. Her mom was as patient as they come, and she'd try to answer the questions. And one day it got a little bit too much, and uh, so she said those words. Don't you know, girl, curiosity killed the cat. That stopped the girl in her tracks. She had to think about that. Then she said, Mommy, what did the cat want to know? (laughs) So you can't stop an Adventist when they get curious. (laughs) Doesn't matter if it's the seals, the trumpets, or Daniel 11, we want to know all about it and get it down, get it straight. So we like to know the future. We like to have a chart, you know, with all the steps leading up to the end. We'd kind of like to know just about when. But the question I'd like to ask, is that the reason prophecy was given? Did God give us prophecy in order to satisfy our curiosity about the future? You think that's the major spiritual reason? I don't think so. I think it goes a lot deeper. I think being an Adventist goes a lot deeper than simply having some sense of how events line up. I think we're probably on safest ground if we go to the greatest of all the prophets. And who would that be? Jesus. Matthew 24. If you have a Bible handy... Uh, We may throw some of these on the screen, but if you have the Bible handy, uh, it would be fun to follow along, because we're going to do a Bible study this morning, and I'll do my best not to be boring, but the Bible uh, at its fullness is never boring. Matthew 24, verse 3, because this is all about curiosity. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? See how curious they were? They wanted to know, when would Jesus come? What would it be like? What's the sign so that we can know when it is near? The disciples were certainly curious. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't really answer their question, at least not right away. Notice verses 4 and 5. He turns the discussion. He says, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Do you notice what Jesus does here? Disciples ask about what and when. And how does Jesus answer? It's all about who doesn't matter the what and the when. If you're looking for the wrong person, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be deceived. In other words, the deception isn't so much about the details and the signs. 
It's about who is coming and whether you will recognize him when he comes. Now, Jesus does actually answer their question in verse 6. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. If you grew up Adventist, you heard about those, didn't you? You will hear about wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, and it proves that the end is near. Is that what your Bible says? No. It says the end is what? Still to come. The end is not yet. In other words, wars and rumors of wars are not signs of the end. Unless you want to believe someone other than Jesus. All right? Verses 7 and 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. There we go. Got the signs all lined up. And what does he say? Verse 8. All these are the beginning of birth pains, not the end. In other words, Jesus takes the whole list of signs of the end that Jews of that day were quite familiar with, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, wars, persecution, trouble, deception, all of that stuff. The Jews of that day were looking for those things and they had their own charts where they could lay out exactly when they would come. And many of them, when Messiah came, rejected him. That's interesting. So, Jesus says, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes and stuff, that's what life is going to be like. Those are signs of the age, not signs of the end. That's what things will be like between the time of my prophecy and its fulfillment. So the purpose of Jesus' sermon, the purpose of prophecy, is not to give us a chart not to give us signs, not to give us dates, then what is that purpose? Why has prophecy been given? Skipping over a few things, we move on to verse 42 because there is the punchline. You all know what a punchline is. It's the little girl saying, what did the cat want to know? Right? That's the punchline. That's like the whole story is going to that one line. In Matthew 24, the whole story is going to one line, and that's right here, verse 42 of Matthew 24. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Jesus' fundamental message is, as much as you would like to know, as curious as you may be, you don't know when I'm coming. And you will not know. In fact, in verse 31, the only time Jesus uses the word sign, he says the sign of the Son of Man is when you look up in the sky and you see me coming. That's not a good predictor, is it? <laughs> when you see that sign, it's too late. You know, see? So Jesus is telling us, I'm not going to be giving you signs. I'm going to tell you what life will be like. But the purpose of prophecy is not to give you a chart. The purpose of prophecy is to encourage you to what? One word. Verse 42, to watch. To watch. I don't know about you, 
But how helpful is that? All right, we're waiting for Jesus to come. We're Adventists. We're, 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 we're anticipating. What are we supposed to do? Watch. Okay. See anything? No, I don't see anything. Do you see anything? No, I don't know. What are we looking for? I don't know. You see, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol. Watching isn't about using your eyes. It's about something else. There's something in this prophecy that we need to give careful attention to. It has something to do with watching. But what is it? The beautiful thing about this prophecy is Jesus does not leave us in the dark. He says, I'm going to define watching for you in case you don't get it. So Jesus lays out a series of four parables in Matthew 24 and 25. And in that series of four parables, he explains exactly what he means by watching. And I think when we give attention to that, the purpose of prophecy will become clear. So let's move ahead. Let's go to the first of those parables. And uh, we can read verses 45 to verse 50. Matthew 24, verses 45 and 50. And here he tells a story to illustrate what he means by watching. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he, what? Returns. I tell you the truth, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. All right, so here's the story. There's a wealthy householder. He's got plenty of employees working for him. And he's going to go on a long trip. And he's concerned that while he's gone, his people may suffer from the lack of his oversight. And so he says, okay, I'm going to put you in charge I want you to make sure that everybody gets food when they need it. When the, ser- when the master comes back, then he goes, you know, hopefully everybody's still alive. You know, they still had enough to eat. So that's one side of watching. The other side is, uh, begins with verse 48, and it's the dark side. Suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's staying away a long time. He'll never know. He then begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. You see what this story is telling us? What is watching all about? It's about relationships. It's about the way people relate to each other. You can be a feeder or a beater. That's what the parable said. You can feed the people or you can beat the people. There's two different ways to react. Those who watch will relate to others differently, will relate to their fellow servants differently. Watching for Jesus' coming is not about getting all the dates in line on a chart. The key to watching is how we treat each other. The analogy here is fellow servants. In the next parable, he takes it a slightly different direction. This is the parable of the ten virgins. And all of them are looking for the second coming. They're all Adventists. See, they're waiting for the bridegroom. But five of them are wise and five of them are foolish. Somewhere in there, I think we're going to figure out what watching is, right? The wise ones are watching 
The foolish ones are not. Well, Matthew has a unique personality. That's one of the interesting things I find about the Bible. We call the Bible the Word of God, and it is. But the Word of God comes to us through the writings of human beings. And human beings have unique personalities. I have three children. They all have unique personalities. They're not like each other at all. And so it is with the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John have different personalities. And those personalities come through in the way that they write. Now, Matthew, well, let me ask it this way. You know anybody who's constantly repeating themselves? Do you know anybody like that? Guys sometimes call it nagging. Well, Matthew has a personality trait that's very interesting. Matthew constantly repeats himself. If in Matthew something is worth saying, it's worth saying twice or three times or four times. Mark doesn't do this. Luke doesn't do this. John doesn't do this. It's a unique window into the soul of Matthew as a writer. For Matthew, the wise and the foolish happens twice. And if you want to understand Matthew 25, you've got to go back to Matthew 7. And in Matthew 7, who is the wise person? The one who builds, children, their house on the rock. Yes, you know about that one. And the foolish man builds his house on the sand. Right, we know that story. But how helpful is that? Okay, if you're watching for Jesus to come, you need to build your house on the rock. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, if you read the parable, you find out that the wise man is one who hears Jesus' words and does them. The foolish man hears Jesus' words and does not do them. That's the difference. You see? All of these people are listening to Jesus. All of the virgins are waiting for the second coming. They're all Adventists. They're all members of the church, if you will. But those who are called wise are the ones who practice the words of Jesus. In other words, watching has to do with doing what Jesus says, with paying careful attention to his words and then actually carrying them out. In other words, to do good and to not get tired in doing good is what watching is all about. That kind of replays in the next parable, which is the parable of the talents, where everybody gets talents. Some people use them and get multiplied. Others don't use them and lose them. You see? So Jesus is saying, those who are watching will put their talents to work. Watching means to use the gifts that God has given you to bless other people. Do you see how all of these have to do with relationship? The purpose of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It's to teach us how to treat one another today. It needs to somehow affect who we are and how we relate to other people. This really comes home in the fourth parable, which is at the end of Matthew 25. And you know that parable. It's about the Son of Man, when he comes, will have sheep and goats, right? The sheep will be on one side and the goats will be on the other side. And then they have a conversation. And it kind of sums up in verse 40. So let's take a look at Matthew 25 and verse 40. It says, The king will reply, 
I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Now, in the earlier parable, it uses the analogy of servants, but now it changes to family. In other words, I want you to be aware, Jesus says, that everybody in some degree is a brother and a sister. Everybody's family. Now, who is everybody? According to several places in the New Testament, the brother is the soul for whom Christ died. Who would that be? Is that the homeless person on the corner? Is that the sick neighbors in the hospital? Is that that frightful person that got locked up in prison? You see, souls for whom Christ died, that is the brother. And Jesus says here that inasmuch as you've done it unto one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me, he says. In other words, Jesus asks us to put glasses on and to look at the world through new eyes. That homeless person on the street corner is Jesus. That sick person in the hospital is Jesus. The hungry person is Jesus. The prisoner is Jesus. If you knew that that homeless person was Jesus, would you treat them differently? If you knew that your neighbor, who's constantly trampling on your roses, is Jesus, would you respond differently? You see, it, it changes the whole dynamic. This is what watching is all about. It's to get a new mentality. It's to have a different perspective because the end is coming. Because another world is coming. And in a real sense for the New Testament, watch is to bring that other world into the present. The way that you'll treat people in heaven, start up now. Get it going now. The way that you'll spend time with Jesus in heaven, get it going now. Watching is pulling the end into the present and the beginning to live like we will live in eternity. To watch is to treat our brothers and sisters as though they were Jesus. The purpose of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. To teach us how to live between the prophecy and its fulfillment. In Matthew, if it's worth saying, it's worth saying how many times? times. Twice, at least, maybe four times. Okay? But this business about treating other people in the light of Jesus happens again, and it's back in Matthew 18. I'd like you to turn with me, if you have your Bible in front of you, to Matthew 18. And. Uh, there's a story there. You can just let your eyes go over the story if you'd like, uh, but uh, we won't read a particular text right now. It's a story of a man who owes 10,000 talents. And uh, 1,000 talents was about the amount of taxes a typical Roman province took in in a year. So imagine 10,000 talents is like 10 years of taxes in California. Any idea what that would be? I understand it's something like... 90 billion dollars a year and that's still not enough for them you know but 90 billion dollars per year 
Multiply that by 10 years, and what do you have? 900 billion. How many of you want to pay that one off? All right, how long will it take you? Too long, much too long, much more than a lifetime. You see, there's a man in this story who owes $900 billion. Who is that man? It's you and me. That's how we stand before God in terms of our performance. So the gospel can never be about our performance because trying to earn your way with God is like trying to pay back $900 billion. And I think even Bill Gates would have trouble with that one. You see? That person is you and me. And what happens in the story is the king forgives him. Just forgives it. Just wipes it out. You're free right now. Done. And he walks out of there. What must he be thinking right now? Yes! <laughs> I, I'm free! Awesome! And he runs into one of his acquaintances who owes him five months' wages. Now, that's not pocket change. That's ten, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. What does he do? Chokes him, shakes him, throws him into prison until he pays it all back. Is there some kind of disconnect here? You see, the point of the parable is that the servant needed to treat the brother, the fellow servant, how? The way the king had treated him. Verse 33. Verse 33 of chapter 18. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? You see, that five months' wages was no small thing. But when the king forgives you $900 billion, it changes the way you look at life. It should change everything. And the king says that becomes the model for how you treat others. You and I are that man who owed $900 billion, and God has forgiven us. So how should we relate to other people? The way that God has treated us. And that is forgiveness, acceptance. I know what you're thinking. I want to forgive. I, I know I need to forgive, but it's so hard. Yes, it is hard. Yes, it is hard. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things will ever do. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. But the only way I know how to learn to forgive, what do you think it is? Is to be a disciple of a forgiving person. And as I become a disciple of Jesus, and as I experience his forgiveness, it makes me want to be like him. It makes me want to extend that forgiveness to you and to everybody else in my life. Watching is about learning how to forgive. Because you can't have relationships in a church or in any kind of society without forgiveness. It just isn't going to work. There will always be wars and rumors of wars until that happens. And God is calling us to be a new kind of community, a community in which we forgive as we have been forgiven. So let me just say, watching then 
is learning how to forgive. It's modeling on the great forgiver. Well, if it's worth saying twice, might as well say it three times, right? So let's go to Matthew 23 and verse 23. Matthew 23, verse 23. And Jesus is hammering a little on the Pharisees here because some people are stubborn and only a two-by-four will get their attention. Across the forehead, of course. Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, Jesus is having a little fun with the Pharisees. You know, you can, you can picture them leaning over their table, tea leaf number one on the left, tea leaf number two, move it to the left, tea leaf number three, tea leaf number nine, tea leaf number ten, that one's for God, put it over here on the right. You see, does that sound silly? And yet, that would be the product of faithfulness, wouldn't it? You want to be faithful to God, and so you're careful in determining exactly how tithe is to be paid. So Jesus isn't mocking tithe paying, but he's saying, didn't you know there's something more important than that? There's something heavier, something of greater weight, something more significant? Don't neglect this, but there's something more important than that. And what is that? Justice, mercy, Faithfulness, or to put it in other words, to be fair, to be merciful, to, be, to keep your word, to be a promise keeper. These are weightier matters of the law. This is what watching is all about. It's how we relate to each other. It's all about relationships. And the test comes with the unlovely, the stranger, those who are different. You know, I think sometimes as Adventists we feel that these practical details are more important than how we treat people. But it really came home to me one day how ugly that can be. My wife and I were eating out at a restaurant with a couple of friends. He was a pastor, still is, his wife. When the meal was over, it was about $40. That was at least 10 years ago. <laughs> but the bill was about $40, and he says, I'll take care of the tip. And he reached into the pocket and pulled out a quarter and put it on the table. And then he went off to the cashier to pay the bill, and my wife and I looked at each other, oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. It's just not right. Well, what are we going to do? I don't know. What do you think we should do? I don't know. And it was a real conundrum. We thought, well... The least we can do is do our half. So I reached into my pocket, pulled out $3, put it on the table. He came back from the cashier, looked at the table, said, what's this? Picked up the $3 and put it in his pocket. <laughs> now you see, that waitress may not have been nice that day, but she was probably a single mother or a college student who wasn't ready for a test. I mean, everyone has a story. 
Do you think God would be pleased if we had put that money in the offering plate instead of giving it to the one who is in need? Weightier matters of the law, justice, fairness, etc. Review and Herald, May 29, 1888, from the pen of Ellen White. It is the desire and plan of Satan to bring in among us those who will go to great extremes, people of narrow minds who are critical and sharp and very tenacious in holding their own conceptions of what the truth means. They will be exacting and will seek to enforce rigorous duties and go to great lengths in matters of minor importance while they neglect the weightier matters of the law, judgment, and mercy, and the love of God. Well, there it is. That brings us to the judgment, huh? Investigative judgment. The great horror at the future of Adventist children. I was one of them. Sometimes I still act like one. We'll talk about that next week. The topic next week is the judgment. Does that fit with the gospel and with the grace of God? The judgment of the living scared the daylights out of me as a 16-year-old. We'll talk about that next week. It will be therapeutic. But I believe it will also be encouraging, and you may not want to miss that. But what is going on in the judgment? There's only one question in the judgment that matters, and that question is this. What do you think of Jesus Christ? How do you relate to what he has done for you? Have you received the forgiveness and the grace and the blessing that he offers? That's the question of the judgment. But there's a second matter in the judgment, and that's the matter of evidence. I mean, it is, after all, an investigative judgment. What is the evidence of the judgment based on what Matthew is telling us? What's the evidence? How we treat each other is the evidence of the judgment. It's not the basis of it. You don't earn your way into heaven by treating people nice. It has nothing to do with it. We're 900 billion in debt. Give up on that one. Okay? But how we treat one another tells the judgment what we think of God, what kind of God we serve. Because if our God is mean, we'll probably be mean. If our God is sharp and critical, like some of those folk Ellen White was talking about, we'll probably be sharp and critical. If our God is judgmental, we'll probably be judgmental. But if our God is forgiving, we become forgiving. If our God is merciful, we become merciful. If he's loving, Knowing him makes us more loving. You see, how we treat people is the evidence of whether the gospel has taken root in our life. It's the evidence of how we think of Jesus. If everybody in this room is Jesus, then how we treat each other is the measure of how we would treat Jesus if he were here. I remember a small church in upstate New York about 25 members who caught the spirit of this. It's a place called Youngsville, New York. And they were some of the sweetest people I ever knew. And they 
went out and uh, at ingathering time, remember those days? At ingathering time, they'd go out to the malls and the department stores and arrange with managers to sing carols, you know, and people love to give when they get something, you know, so it made it easy, made it fun. And this church shot to the top of the charts. You know, they had charts back then, all the churches. You know, they'd order them in the amount of ingathering you got in, you know, per capita and so forth. And this church was right at the top. And they noticed that at the bottom of the list was Monticello. Monticello was a church of similar size, but it was 100% black. Youngsville was 100% white. You see, the problem with Monticello is not that the people weren't faithful or didn't want to get their goal. The problem was that Monticello was 99.8% white and the Adventist church was black. And if you saw a black man running in Monticello, you didn't ask questions, you just called the police. So jogging was out. And imagine going door to door in that community raising funds. So Monticello had its challenges. And one day, the elder of the Youngsville Church stood up in the meeting. He says, I have a burden on my heart. He says, I see our brothers and sisters in Monticello struggling. He says, why don't we go down there and help them get their goal? I didn't know what to say. I'd never been part of a church like that. I said, sounds like a great idea. And so the Youngsville Church connected with Monticello. They said it was okay. We went down there with connections that we had with, with certain department store chains. We got in to uh, the department store chain in Monticello. They tossed out the Sisters of Mercy that night. I didn't feel good about that. But uh, <laughs> they basically said, oh, we've heard about you guys. I said, whenever you're singing, it brings in more customers. So this is good for us. Do come down and share what you've done. And that night, black faces and white faces together sang in a choir Christmas songs. And in the middle of that singing, we'd run out of literature. I mean, people were just crowding around. We'd run out of literature, so I ran to the car at the other end of the parking lot to get some more literature. And as I was going, I listened. It was awful. It was the worst music I'd ever heard. Both churches were tone deaf. I thought, oh no, this is a disaster, you know? And as I got the literature, and I'm heading back toward the music. A lady comes up to me and says, Do you have anything to do with that singing group? <laughs> yes. It's the most beautiful music I ever heard. And suddenly I realized something. I couldn't hear it. But what happened at that moment was what watching was all about. It was, it was such a moment in the history of the universe that the angels couldn't resist. They came down from heaven. They joined in the singing, and the secular people could hear them, <laughs> even though I could not. I could barely control myself. When we got back to the little Monticello church after that, the baskets were full of money. It was even as good as the sheepdog children that night, you know, with their sad faces just earlier. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was loaded, baskets overflowing. 
And I remember the treasurer of the little black church. He was about five foot three, uh, 280 pounds, you know, nose tackle, perfect, you know, bald head. And he was glowing as the bills were piling up higher and higher. And when it was done, he says, Well, praise the Lord. What are we going to do? How are we going to divide this money up between the two churches? And the elder of the Youngsville Church stepped forward. He said, we didn't come here to have credit for any of this money. We came here so you could make your goal. And the treasurer was as silent as I'd ever seen him. And finally, with tears in his eyes, he said, have mercy. (laughs) (laughs) The weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. The purpose of prophecy is not to satisfy our curiosity about the future. It's to teach us how to live between the prophecy and the fulfillment. The purpose of prophecy is to teach us how to watch, to love one another as Christ has loved us, to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. It's not enough to know the future. It's not enough to be right. What counts is the evidence of our lives. What kind of God do we serve? What kind of gospel do we live? That is what prophecy is all about. Would you bow your heads with me? I thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning. I thank you for your word. You kind of broke my heart this morning, too. I want to be like you. I thank you that the gospel is becoming clearer and clearer as time goes on. I thank you for the incredible mercy, love, and forgiveness you've shown us. And now, like that forgiven servant... You call us to learn how to love, learn how to forgive, learn how to show mercy no matter what the cost. Help us to remember in every moment that every person we meet is Jesus to us for that day. May we live in your presence from now until you come again. And I thank you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.